Good morning, everybody. Uh, I just want to say thanks again to Hilda for sharing and just the encouragement that she is and the reminder of how good the king is uh, that we follow and that we serve, that he is far better than what we expect, uh, that he often works in ways that just don't make sense to us, uh, but when he does, we see how good he is. So thank you, Hilda, for sharing that. Uh, today, we're in Mark 11. Uh, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Mark. Uh, for a great portion of, of Mark, Jesus has been spending time up in Galilee, which is uh, north of Jerusalem. He's been uh, teaching and performing miracles, healings, uh, even raising people from the dead. Um, and for the last couple of chapters, he's, he's set his eyes on Jerusalem, and he's kind of heading into uh, Jerusalem for the climax of, of his life uh, and his ministry. Uh, and that's where we uh, come to in Mark chapter 11, where we see that the king has come. Uh, and Israel knows that they're receiving him in this triumphal way. We see that the king has come, and as a result, we're grateful because he's not who we expected, but he is far better than that. And we're going to see as we look through Mark uh, that Israel thought the king that was coming was one thing, um, but he was different than what they expected, and then how we often imagine the king to be one thing, uh, but he is far greater than we can imagine. Uh, so the idea of, of kingship and kings uh, is a rich uh, tradition throughout Israel's history. Uh, all the way back in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to go from the land that he is in uh, because God is going to make Abraham into a great nation. And with that, he promises, uh, promises him descendants, uh, abundant descendants, land, uh, prosperity, uh, into a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, so Abraham goes, and it takes a little bit until this kingdom is actually established, but we see in Joshua that Joshua leads Israel into the promised land. Uh, they're able to, you know, God gives them the land, um, and over time, uh, judges are put in place, and then kings. Uh, but the kingdom of Israel, God delivers. Uh, God fulfills his promise and establishes this kingdom of Israel. But also, as we go through the Old Testament, we see this cycle uh, over and over again, where Israel uh, turns away from God, that they start sinning, or they uh, start following gods that are, are other than our God. So God judges them, Israel repents, so they start following him, but then sooner or later, they turn away from God again. And, and there's this just cycle of, of sin and judgment and repentance, until eventually God sends them into exile for their sin. Uh, the Babylonians come in, uh, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. Uh, Israel as a nation, as uh, as they were expecting was no more, and they were sent into exile for their sin. But in the midst of that despair and that oppression, uh, there is a continual promise through the prophets from God that one day a king will come to restore Israel into uh, a new kingdom. That the Son of Man will come, the Messiah will come, he will conquer, he will restore Israel to its glory. Uh, we see that in, in passages like Daniel 7, uh, where Daniel receives this vision of four beasts representing uh, kind of four major kingdoms, and that the Son of Man will come and he will conquer, uh, he will destroy those beasts, he will destroy those kingdoms, and as a result, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That the Son of Man, which is often uh, the name that Jesus uses for himself uh, more than any other, is going to come, he's going to restore the kingdom, and Israel is going to be in its former glory. That's what they were expecting. Presently, Israel, uh, as we see in Mark 11, is conquered by Rome. They, this son of man has not come yet as they expected, 
Uh, they are conquered by Rome and facing various forms of persecution, oppression, um, and they're just waiting. They're anticipating for their deliverance. They're waiting for their king to come so that they might be delivered uh, from this oppression. And in Mark 11, uh, Jesus is also coming to Jerusalem uh, for Passover, which is a yearly remembrance of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, uh, to go and to establish their own kingdom. So there's this kind of tension happening right now that, that Israel is reflecting on what God has done in the past and how God redeemed them in the past, and they're thinking, you know, when is he going to do this again? When is he going to come? When is he going to deliver us? And then here's Jesus doing these things up in Galilee that people in Jerusalem are hearing whispers about. Maybe some of them had gone up to see him, uh, but they've heard these, these rumors of these things that he's teaching, these incredible things that he's saying, these miracles that he's performing, the fact that he's raising people from the dead. And they're thinking, you know, could this, could this be the guy? Could this be the son of man that's prophesied in Daniel 7? Is this our king who is coming, who is going to drive out Rome, and who's going to establish himself as king over our kingdom again? They're longing for this returning king. So what Jesus does enter, that's why we see this triumphal entry where Israel, many in Israel are laying their cloaks on the floor, they're putting uh, palm branches on the ground, that they are welcoming their king who they think is going to come and rule. They're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now or save pray. It comes from Psalm 118, which is another kind of psalm of prophecy of the coming king. So they're saying, Jesus, you are here. Save us. Save us now. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. That they were expecting Jesus to come and to establish, they were expecting conquest. They were expecting Jesus to come on a white horse, uh, to conquer Rome through violence, through war, as as often uh, as happens when one kingdom conquers another. Uh, and that they were expecting him to come and to reestablish a promised kingdom, a kingdom of Israel, a nationalistic promise. So we read in Mark 11 that they're praising him and welcoming him into the city, but we know just a couple chapters later, a couple days later in the week, they crucify him and they scorn him. Why? Why, why this dichotomy between the two? Why one day they're praising him and a couple days later they're killing him? It's because he was not who they expected. Uh, there's a couple passages also in the Old Testament that are, that are prophesying the Son of Man. We got the examples of Daniel, which is this mighty king who is going to come in and conquer. But then we also got examples in Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 9, 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. So we have the, this king coming who is going to bring salvation. But it then says, Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he's going to come and conquer, but through humility. He's not going to come on this great white horse, but he's coming on a donkey, an example of service and servitude, not majesty and glory. So they were missing uh, the other side of this prophecy of who the Son of Man is. Isaiah 52 and 53, a similar thing where it talks about the idea of the suffering servant, that he will come to die. Um, I'd encourage you, especially in this time of Advent, to read those passages because it's very rich. Um, but they were missing that. And then Jesus, when he enters Jerusalem, uh, they receive him, and immediately 
he does things that are contrary to what they expected. Uh, he, he enters and then goes to this fig tree and sees that the fig tree is not producing fruit, so he curses it, and the fig tree withers and dies. Which feels like a random story, random thing. Why is Jesus cursing a fig tree? Um, but oftentimes, fig trees uh, is used as an image for Israel, that fig tree and Israel often represent each other. So Jesus is coming in and is cursing the fig tree and, and by proxy is cursing Israel for not producing fruit. And then after that, Jesus enters in to the temple in Mark eleven fifteen and onwards. And this is kind of the one instance in the Gospels where we see Jesus angry with his righteous anger because uh, he comes in and he sees uh, the temple is, is not being treated as a sacred place as it is supposed to be. Uh, in this outer courts of the temple, which is the part of the temple that uh, only, gen- like, that was the only part of the temple that Gentiles could enter into. Uh, in this outer temple, uh, Israel had kind of turned it into these markets where people could buy animals to perform sacrifices. There was these kind of money-changing tables where people would have to come and exchange money because they had to use the right money in order to buy the things they needed to do sacrifices, but these money changers would exploit it and, and, and charge people more money than they needed. Um, so Jesus entered into this place that was supposed to be a place for worship, supposed to be a place for people to come and to sit before God and to learn about him and be with him. And what he sees is, is the opposite of that. So Jesus returns and he flips tables and he drives people out in anger, in frustration, so that Gentiles might have an opportunity to be before God, to worship God. So Israel was expecting this nationalistic king to restore the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus comes and immediately curses Israel and then makes room for the Gentiles to worship him, which is just contrary to what they're expecting. Uh, There's a disconnect there. We, too, hold false expectations of the king that we think is coming. Uh, I think there's a couple of different uh, false expectations we have about who Jesus is. Uh, I have two that I think are pretty prominent. One is we think our king is this comfortable and therapeutic king, that this king is going to make my life feel good. You know, I can count on God to give me this, this natural progression of life that we expect all people should have that, that he's going to help me get an education, uh, a good job that pays, you know, enough for me to live comfortably. It'd be nice if you could pay me, a, you know, I can get a job that pays me a little bit more so I can kind of enjoy more. That he's, he's a God who's going to help me to find a spouse so that I can get married and have a good marriage. He's going to give me kids and the right kids, you know, the kids that, that obey and listen and aren't disruptive. Uh, the kids who are going to go on and do great things to make me look good. Um, we follow God because we think that he's going to allow us to travel and to explore the world, that he's going to give us good health, that we're not going to, you know, we might deal with colds or, or, or fevers, but, but nothing beyond that, that he's going to bless us in that way, that we think he's going to make our lives comfortable. Or we view him as this therapeutic king, that he's going to make me feel good. Not just that life is going to be good, but he's going to make me feel good. He's going to make sure that the vibes are right. Uh, that even when I feel anxious or... Uh, struggle with depression or something like that, that I can go to him because he promises that uh, all who are weary can go to him and he'll give them rest. So we think, when I feel anxious, I can go to him and pray and he's going to take it away and I'm not going to feel that way anymore. The bad feelings are going to go away. So we think that following Jesus is going to be comfortable or that following Jesus is going to give us the life that we want. 
The reality, as we all know, is that is not true. That we live in, in a broken world full of sin. Um, and as a result, even though God is good and blesses us in abundant ways, that doesn't mean that life is always going to be easy. We all have experienced um, situations where we've realized that that isn't true, or we know some people who've experienced that as well. So I'm grateful for Hilda for sharing, uh, for showing us just the, the gratitude that can come uh, when God doesn't do things in the way that we expected him to do or, or set up our lives in the way that we hope, but that way that he shows that he is still good in the midst of that. But even if God did give us everything that we wanted and gave us that comfortable life, it's still not going to be enough. Uh, King Solomon in the Old Testament is the son of David, um, did have it all. God blessed him abundantly. He had uh, wisdom beyond imagine, a bunch of money, uh, political power. Uh, he was the one that God chose to build the temple, which is a huge thing in Israel's history, that they finally had this physical place that God's presence could dwell and they can come and worship it. Solomon was the one that God chose to build that. Uh, Solomon had many wives and concubines. That He had the life that a lot of people thought um, they wanted, that he had it all. But then we see in Ecclesiastes, which was either written by Solomon or written by somebody kind of in the um, tradition of Solomon. And in Ecclesiastes 2, he starts listing off just all these things that he's done, all these things that he has, his accomplishments. He's, he's putting out his resume and saying, look, uh, look at how great my life is. But then he finishes it in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11, and says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So here we have a man who had everything, who had the comfortable life, and yet he said it was all vanity, that it just wasn't enough, that it doesn't meet us in the deepest needs that we truly have, which we will see that Jesus ultimately does. So that is uh, one king that we are expecting, that we are expecting a comfortable or therapeutic king, uh, the other is we're expecting a king who's just not that demanding, who isn't going to demand too much from us. We think that the demand of following Jesus is low, that all he wants from us is that we attend church on Sunday, um, we give our tithe, maybe a comfortable 10%, uh, that we serve every once in a while, uh, and that we live a comfortable life uh, with our family, friends, and coworkers where we're generally kind of moral and good people. And that's all he wants. That's all he wants from us. You know, we don't think that he's going to call me to go overseas on a missions trip or to, to give more money to the point where it's a bit uncomfortable and I have to sacrifice certain things in order to give to whatever it is. Um, we don't think that he's going to call us to invite that neighbor over who is really going through a, a hard thing in their life that, you know, it's just kind of uncomfortable to talk to them about. We just, you know, we think that he might be calling other people to do that. You know, he's calling Ronald to go on missions or he's calling Matt to invite that uh, challenging person over to their house. But for me, all I have to do is kind of go to church and I'm, I'm good. We ultimately want the kingdom without the king or the demands that comes with following the king. We think that following Jesus is going to establish a kingdom of ease and prosperity and it's going to fit into my expectations and not demand too much of me. But again, the reality is that God demands something from all of us at different points. It does look different. He demands different things of different people. Um, but he does demand things of us. He is our king, and I, us in, in the U.S. don't really kind of understand what it means to be under a king, um, but being a subject of a king requires uh, following his demands. For me, one of the biggest things uh, 
that was part of that for me was when I sensed that he was demanding me to go overseas on missions. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, uh, I felt like he was calling me to go. I didn't know where, I didn't know what, for how long, but I felt like he was saying, no, I want you to go. And I fought that for a while. As an 18-year-old, I'm like, I, don't, I can't do it. I don't know who I am. Um, why is he calling me to do that? But eventually I said yes, uh, and I spent eight years um, either in Australia or preparing to go there. Uh, and as much as I love Australia um, and my time over there, I look back on fondly, it was also full of, of hardships um, and, and struggles because of this demand that he had from me. It was at times very lonely. I had to leave my family and my friends. I had to leave my home. Um, I had to leave the life that I thought he was going to lead me into uh, to go to this place where I didn't know anybody, to do this work that I really didn't know how to do, I was just kind of thrown into it, uh, to, yeah, there's a lot of challenges with that. And then even the last year and a half of my time there, uh, COVID came in and just really revamped how we did ministry. Uh, so ministry went from a lot of kind of one-on-one, having coffee with people in a beautiful city to a bunch of Zoom meetings for a year and a half, which is uh, very challenging, and after a while, it just there's this natural disconnect there, and it was it was hard to do that day in and day out, uh, and trust that God was good in the midst of it. But as I've learned, and I think all you know, those of us who have sensed God demanding us to do something, and when we follow it, uh, that in the midst of that, He is good and He provides uh, far abundantly than we can expect. I'm grateful for my time in Australia. Uh, I God blessed me with. Uh, great friends that I made over there. Uh, I met my wife Maddie over there too when she sensed that God was demanding her to go and serve for a year. So he blessed, and blessed me in that way. Uh, he, you know, I think back on my time and I think of people like Leanne, who was a, a Chinese postdoctorate student, uh, who eventually became a Christian after we were studying through the book of Mark. Uh, or I think about Enoch, who was a, a student leader who is now going to seminary and, and serving actively in his church, uh, that he moved in mighty ways. Uh, and that there was countless experiences like this where we had students who were praying together before they were about to go out uh, on, a, on a mission trip to share their faith with people who didn't know him. So God is a God who demands, but in that he also blesses and provides in mighty ways. So that is the king that we think is coming, but who is the king that has actually come? Uh, the king who has come is one who has established an upside-down kingdom. Uh, who does things in ways that don't make sense to us, um, but uh, provides greatly to, and operates in ways that are far greater than we can imagine. That we have a king who is a much lower servant than we can expect, but a much higher king than we can imagine. We see this in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, um, where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not... E- did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I'm going to pause there. So we see Jesus, uh, second person of the Trinity, who prior to him coming out to earth uh, was just kind of living up in heaven, existing in full communi- communion with God the Father and God the Spirit uh, in his full glory and majesty. And yet he decided to humble himself into the form of man, uh, to take up humanity and all the the struggles and problems that come with it, the aches and the pains and the hunger and the the thirst. Um, So he came down in the form of man and then also died 
on a cross in a humiliating way uh, as a servant for us. That he humbled himself from the place of king above, king above all kings into the form of death uh, on our sake. As a result, we see in verse 9 that it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he came to establish a kingdom that is far greater than the kingdom of Israel, far greater uh, than a kingdom that provides me with a comfortable life or not a demanding life. He came to provide a kingdom where he rules over all of humanity, past, present, and future, so that all people might bend their knee, they may glorify his name, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He came to die so that we might know him, that we might have a relationship with him and experience life to the fullest. Life far better than we can imagine. Life with our king. So he comes in to usher his kingdom, not through conquest, uh, like Israel was expecting, but through death. And that is the type of king that he is. A much lower servant than we expect, but a much higher king than we can imagine. So what does that mean for us? What is our response in that? Uh, I want to argue maybe three things. One, that we respond in gratitude. The gratitude a gratitude that overflows from absolute surrender and allegiance. That we uh, look for the ways that he provides um, in ways that seem contrary to, to what we would expect, and we praise him for that. You know, we praise him because, uh, you know, maybe you, you lost your job at some point, but you saw the way he provided money for you through your community group, through your church, through your family. Or the time he demanded you to go on that missions trip, to go to Kenya or to India, uh, and you were, you, were, you were hesitant about it, you didn't want to go, but you did, and you saw what God did in your life, and you saw what he did through you as well. For all the, just the little things, that, the way that he provides, we respond in gratitude. Uh, yeah, only a king that has come to lowly himself to this degree and to rule over us in his kingdom now and forever can create this kind of gratitude. So we respond in gratitude. We also respond by living like him. You know, so we might not be entering Jerusalem with Jesus on a Monday, but we are walking into our workplace, into school, into our you know, life with our family. So we follow our king there and, and follow his example that we live in humility, uh, humbling ourselves as a servant, um, but pointing people to their king and to their ultimate fulfillment in their king. So we live like him. And the last thing is we anticipate and hope for the fulfillment of his kingdom. Uh, that Jesus, when he came and died, he brought in his kingdom, overcame death, um, that we might experience new life in him. But we also look ahead to the future where his kingdom will come in its fullest. So we see that in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, which I'll read you. Uh, so Revelation 21, 1 to 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So as we live in this life now, following our king, uh, and we face the struggles of this world or the, the uh, missed expectations that we have, we look ahead in hope 
for his kingdom that will come, where there will be no more tears, no more sin, no more brokenness, no more mourning, that he will come, that he will be with us, that he will restore us, and that we will see him and be in relationship with him, that we will experience his glory and worship him forever and ever. And our lives for eternity will be what they were supposed to be in the way that God had designed for us in full communion with him. So we respond in gratitude, we live like him, and we anticipate in hope because our king is far greater than we expect. Communion is a a great time uh, each week that we pause and remember Christ's death and resurrection. It is naturally a time to express gratitude towards our king, uh, who has established his upside-down kingdom, that far exceeds our expectations. This is a time that we look towards hope for what he is going to do uh, now in this life and forevermore in his kingdom, that we reflect and express gratitude for him. Uh, So today, as we take communion, if you call yourself uh, a follower of Jesus, if he is your king, uh, I'd encourage you to pray over a couple of prompts in gratitude. Uh, First, to pray in gratitude to your king who is with you when things are not right. Uh, Thank him when things are hard. Uh, and thank him for the way that he's working in that. And then pray in gratitude for the demands your king is making over you, because uh, those demands make it life to the fullest. Uh, if you don't call yourself a believer, if uh, you haven't submitted to our king, um, I'd encourage you to take this time just to, uh, just to reflect, uh, reflect on who you think this king is, what are some of the hang-ups there, uh, and just pray that he might reveal himself to you. Um, yeah, so as you, as you take time in communion, let's pray in gratitude to our King.